G'day, my name is Chris Anderson and welcome to the Ando & Co podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Marcel von Pfeiffer, who is the Managing Director of Arminius Capital and we met in finance in Brisbane in 2010. And really for me, I hope that you're able to get some of what I get out of being able to sit down with Marcel regularly. And that is that he's able to unpack what's happening in the global macro world, whether it be finance, politics, or anything else along those lines. And um, hopefully just be able to walk into a party or a barbecue or something along those lines just with a better understanding of what's been going on in the world and how that affects financial markets. So Marcel, to kick things off, what can you tell us about yourself? Well, um, to, uh, to put a play on a very old saying, Chris, I was born at a very young age. Um, and to, uh, to dovetail that uh, witty little anecdote um, into something that uh, Warren Buffett, who I'm sure is familiar, um, as familiar to your, your listeners and your viewers as he is to you at, at, at Berkshire Hathaway, said that um, most of the success that he has enjoyed uh, in Berkshire Hathaway, in Hathaway um, has been as a result of him having the good fortune of being born in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately I wasn't uh, born in America, um, a market beholden to 340, 350 million rabid consumers. Um, so no, I was born um, in Australia. Um, I do, however, have the, uh, the privilege um, of having two passports. My dad, as you know, um, was Swiss. Um, that's from Switzerland, just for anyone who's curious. Um, I only spent 47 years correcting people. Uh, of course, after they crucify the pronunciation of my surname, I then tell them that no, no, I'm Swiss, which means I'm not from Sweden, I'm from Switzerland. Um, Anyway, so, uh, my cross to bear, but um, yeah, so I was um, born in Australia um, to uh, relatively humble parents, um, both self-employed, both incredibly hard-working people, Um, had a lot of fun uh, through school, I'm one of those um, odd creatures who uh, excelled in in a few different things that you don't usually think go together, um, like chicken and waffles, I think is how... Um, delicious, how, yeah, to be fair. Quite delicious, yeah. how, how Snoop Dogg um, puts it. Um, so I, um, yeah, apart from enjoying myself at high school and the, the lessons of history, which was, was actually my favourite subject um, at school, but um, obviously the, the maths, streams and physics, etc. Um, but then I also play, or played, play three musical instruments and played rugby and then rode as well, um, both boats and bicycles. Um, yeah, and then uh, had the, the misfortune of accidentally going and studying economics um, at university, which, uh, as you and I have discussed over a, a beverage or seven, um, all the hard yards that we both put into our business degrees uh, pretty much by 2009 was worth a steaming pile of nothing um, and as we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on um, t- tonight with your questions um, you know are the, all, all the economists around the world uh, running the central banks etc uh, earning their salaries um, bestowing the fruits of their 
uh, hard-learned economics lessons at university to uh, to save the world in post-COVID 2020 with their massive largesse of fiscal stimulus uh, packages, etc. But anyway, as I say, I don't want to get in front of the question steam train. That is Chris Anderson. Um, so yeah, mate, feel free to ask me ask me that at some point in time. So um, that's a little bit about my my, my background, effectively. Um, I I lasted a few years in Australia um, before. Uh, one of the few benefits for me, actually, of going to university was making some friends there. Um, I just got the plural in, um, friends. Um, and because of that, I, I made a good contact and found myself in New York um, working. And then in London, I had the, the pleasure in London of working at the great, um, what Matt TB uh, wrote the Rolling Stone piece about the... Um, the vampire squid wrapping its face around humanity, which of course was Goldman Sachs, uh, my employer in London. Um, I also had a little, uh, a little time at a place um, which has since been taken over by RBC Capital Mark, by the Canadians. Um, but that was a little private wealth manager in Jersey, um, in the Channel Islands, um, which was super cool. Um, yeah, very, very niche little part of the world there, looked after some um, some big names and some children of some big names who you would be quite familiar with. Um, and of course, since then, that was almost 20 years ago, um, showing my age, I'm almost 50. Um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the jurisdictions around the world um, that once afforded uh, a certain echelon of people in society to um, channel their investments through, pardon the pun, through the Channel Islands, um, through Guernsey and Jersey. Um, yes, the uh, the world investment community has um, um, shone the spotlight on those areas so they don't enjoy uh, quite the, um, the client fund flow uh, that they did when I was working in Europe um, 20 years ago. Um, I then came back to Australia um, for familial reasons, um, met a girl um, who was Australian, um, got married, uh, had a couple of kids, um, I'm probably messing up the chronology here somewhat, but um, during that timeline I quit an excellent paying job to start my own business while my wife was three months pregnant with their first child. Um, so if that isn't backing oneself, Chris, I don't, I'm, I'm yet to see someone who's done something as stupid, I mean, as courageous and, and entrepreneurial um, as that. Um, anyway, that, that paid off, which was good. I'm still married. Um, so that paid off and then um, business being business and I, as we can drill into, um, ended up in a fairly niche um, area in the funds management world, one that is not um, not particularly well understood nor appreciated in this country, uh, in Australia. Um, so I moved back to Switzerland, uh, back to Europe, um, about five years ago, maybe six years ago. Um, and uh, there's a lot in between there and the story of how I come to be sitting back here in Australia with you that I, I 
don't really want to go into right now. Um, it's that was a fairly painful period, um, again in, in in many people's lives through COVID. But um, yeah, I don't know how your listeners will feel or what their opinion is, etc. On the um, the people who held Australian citizenship and have been paying tax in Australia for almost fifty years, and then were not allowed to return back to to that country in which they pay tax for for almost 50 years, etc., etc. Um, but as I say, that's something that we can or don't have to <laughs> talk, talk about ever again. Um, anyway, so here I am, back in Australia now for about a year or so. Um, voila, as we say. And as I sort of mentioned earlier, one of the big benefits I find in being able to catch up with Marcel regularly is that I don't necessarily watch the news every day, but he does. And so if I ask a question, I know that he's already looked at all the news, unpacked all the data, and when he answers me in terms of what's going on in the world, I don't have to second guess it. And so I guess, Marcel, before we dive into anything else, what's been going on in the world over the last 12 months that is impacting your world in financial markets? Uh, I would expect that the majority of the public would expect me to say the war in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. okay? Because uh, I don't want to go down a very deep, dark rabbit hole here on this one with you, Mm -hmm. um, unless you want to. Um, But... uh, I'm not going to deflect from the point that the special military operation that the Russians call it um, have affected global financial markets in 2022, um, most notably in the first eight to well, eight, yeah eight months of the year, um, with the resultant effect on oil and the energy complex on mass. Um, and also the soft commodity space, um, uh, a lot of which obviously impinges upon my uh, investment day <laughs> on, a, on a minute-by-minute, day-to-day basis um, in our global macro hedge fund because um, we trade uh, commodities clearly, um, but also equities, bonds and foreign exchange, um, almost all of which have been touched in some way um, by that event. However, um, when I said before that I expected the listeners would expect me to say the Ukraine, um, the blame that a lot of financial market commentators, um, and thank you for pointing out to your to your listeners that I can read, uh, which is good, instilling um, confidence, tons and tons of confidence um, in, in the people out there. Um, but it's true, so, you know, so I probably do spend, I would suggest, somewhere around two hours a day. Um, sifting through material that may or may not be uh, of use, some of it's information, some of it's data. Um, and my job is to glean what data I can and turn it into information. But um, the point I'm coming to is that it's a terrible thing that's happened over in Europe, but to blame the machinations of what's impacted financial markets in 2022 
solely and singularly on Putin and the Russians, um, I think is a critical point that many, many people have missed. Um, and there are those of us in the markets, um, apart from myself, who have actually, sorry, along with myself, who have actually had a, a you know, I'll say it because it's just you and me, even though other people are listening, but yeah, yeah we've had a spectacular year yeah. in, with our returns um, in our funds. Um, but the problem is, is that this has all been caused, and this is my humble professional opinion, um, but the Russian invasion and what it did to the energy complex and to other areas of, of capital markets um, is re has really just been the icing on the cake from what all the world governments and the world central banks did post March 26th, and I remember sitting in Geneva when Powell got on the uh, TV and said, <laughs> effectively, we're just going to open the sluice gates, open the dam gates again with the with the uh, easing of monetary policy. And I, you know, I pause and I sigh because, again, I I firmly believe, and our our fund's performance attests to this, um, that if you if you've been able to read, as in read, as in understand what's been happening and what they've done, then you understand very well why by early 22, um, what happened to capital markets happened to them. Um, so, yeah, look, um, from a geopolitical perspective, um, clearly, uh, <laughs> you know, the outcome of the Russian um, special military operation in the Ukraine um, to take back part of a land uh, that, again, you know, you need to you need to read through the history. You know, this part of the world, for the past one twenty to sort of one sixty years, um, like it's effectively, it's really half Poland and half Russia, right? Um, there is, you know, of course, um, ostensibly a, a material and significant Ukrainian presence as well. Um, this is a topic for another day. You know, <laughs> we could make we could do a podcast on the Ukraine, right? Yeah. Um, not on the war, actually on the region. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this whole situation, and again, I just hearken back to what I was taught 400 years ago at school, you know, when I was a little boy. Um, and we learnt in, in history that the Ukraine was the breadbasket of the East, mm. right? Nothing has changed, mm. right? Really. Um, so you've had the, the situation in Russia, which is in the process now, um, of dovetailing in to the Chinese problem um, and the replacement, you know, the sanctions that were levied upon Putin. Um, I remember, so we don't actually trade the ruble against the Aussie dollar or the US dollar. Um, we don't trade the ruble at all for, you'll be surprised to know, for, for risk management reasons. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, simply, it's simply too volatile for us to touch. We, we run, it's not a, we run a, a fund that has low volatility, but we are not a volatility targeting hedge fund. We don't target a specific level or percentage of vol. Um, but we like to be a low vol fund, which is why we don't touch the ruble. Um, but the sanctions that were levied against Russia, you know, kicking them out of the SWIFT payment system and everyone thought, this is awesome. You know, this will bring these horrible Russians to their knees. 
And like six, seven months later, the ruble was actually stronger than it was on February 22nd. Sorry, they invaded on February 22nd. It was stronger than the day that they got kicked off the global payment system. Um, so there are other things at play, and they all come back to, again, why we've had such a good year. Um, ultimately, it all comes back to inflation. It comes back to the energy complex, so oil and natural gas, which I'm sure, you know, you know mummy please, I'm, I'm sure people know, right, what's happening in Europe with, with gas prices and, and, and with energy. Um, so all of this is driven literally by the price of energy. And when you're in an inflationary environment, the one thing, the, the single thing, you know, you, you'll get all these reports from um, stockbrokers and fund managers and real estate guys and your bank manager who will say, oh, I think we're going into an inflationary period. So if we are, you need to buy this. Right. Right? And I'll tell you what to buy. Um, they're salesmen, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you what actually, what is immutable, what will always go up in value in an inflationary environment are energy commodities, mm-hmm. right? And they will keep going up until we tip into a, um, a recessionary environment. And as I say, the, the best solution for high oil prices is higher oil prices. Um, and of course there is a, a mathematical, um, an econometric equation which sort of says that around about 120 bucks a barrel US dollars, the world can accommodate and absorb energy at that price level. And in the old days, um, before certain countries blew up pipelines of natural gas, um, the gas price was kind of also correlated to the oil price. So you have this you have this environment where inflation hits the world's uh, growth level, growth profile is, is very healthy, perhaps too healthy. And oil can keep going up in price up until about 120 bucks a barrel. Then it gets much more expensive, increases the cost of factors of production. Um, and as we're seeing in Europe now, um, with the gas, the impact of the gas prices on you know the manufacturing behemoth of Europe, which is Germany, uh, is that they're now shutting down manufacturing plants. So you have, if you like, these domino effects um, of what originally really is an inflation problem, um, which I believe, from my school of thought, and demonstrably what these twits did in 2020, pardon my French, um, is that this is, a, this is a demon of their own design. Um, like the, the central banks and the governments have literally created this inflationary problem that we have now, and Putin, um, I mean, what does Russia produce? Like, what is the easiest thing in the world for Russia to produce? It's energy, it's oil and gas, right? It's like, they do oil and gas, Australia does coal and iron ore, that's all we do, (laughs) right? Um, So it's an energy product, who needs energy the most? The world's largest manufacturing hub, which is this tiny little country called China. So now you've got a situation where the West has forced or is effectively forcing Putin's hand because he can't transact in US dollars. And all commodities all over the world are traded in futures, which are priced in US dollars. So the takeaway, um, 
and I appreciate, and I hope you don't mind, but this is a long-winded way of answering your initial question, is that the end piece of news from 2022, which we're getting to, is going to be the bandying together of Russia, China, probably Venezuela, and of course, everyone's good friends, the Saudi Arabians. Um, I'm yet to be convinced, and we can again have this conversation at a later date. Um, it's a, it is a very dark, deep rabbit hole to go down to, to, to begin to surmise about the end of the US dollar. Um, I have grave reservations that um, the US dollar can be replaced as easily as many people think it can be, let alone would like it to be. Um, but what I can say uh, is that the power of having your the backing of your economy actually being energy, the price of energy, um, in an inflationary environment is actually a powerful boon, B-O-O-N, for November, to that country, right? In the same way that in Australia, they reap the rewards when the iron ore price is super high, right? Um, the companies do well, the governments do even better because they have all these royalties and taxes which they do absolutely nothing to deserve or earn, but then BHP and Rio has a bumpy year for whatever reason. Um, and iron ore is in favour and coal is in favour and everybody benefits. So I think that's, that's going to be the resultant effect. Um, but as I say, your listeners might expect me to say that it was the Ukraine, but what it really is, it has just been the natural conclusion of about two years of central bankers and governments around the world uh, issuing so much debt it's not funny and creating so much liquidity it's not funny. Um, and voila, you have 11% inflation in the UK, you have household energy bills in the UK that are 700% higher than they were two years ago. You have eight, well what did the RBO say this week? On Monday or Tuesday, whatever it was, um, Lowe expects inflation will hit 8% in Australia. Um, the Yanks really got to around 10%. Their numbers are fungible. Again, that's a, a whole new um, a whole new interview. Um, and, and this is what we have. So we have an inflationary environment um, and the Ukraine uh, situation, um, I don't think, is going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, you can say many things about the Russians, but uh, one thing they have is patience, and the other thing they have is manpower. And so, if we look at everything that's been going on in the world, and we've touched on it quite a bit, if we then take Sorry. it back to, to what's happening in Australia, what can you walk us through over, let's say, the last 12 months and how Australia has fared compared to other markets in the world? Um, so from, from a, a capital markets perspective, um, the Australian stock market uh, has done materially better um, than pretty much every other 
major exchange in the world apart from Argentina, um, who's up. Of course, their currency is down through the floor. Um, so that net net doesn't <laughs> doesn't actually mean much, um, unless of course you're Argentinian. Yeah. Right? Um, otherwise, if you're an Aussie wanting to invest in Argentina and uh, reap a twenty percent. Um, stock market return, then you needed to have hedged your foreign exchange exposure, which would have cost you a bucket load. Um, anyway, so Australia at the moment, I think, is down somewhere around negative three, negative four percent for the year um, compared to Europe and America. Um, I mean, the headline indices in Europe are down again, I think. <laughs> in a 24 hour period, I mean, America's fallen three and a half percent. In two days, so today, to be fair, eighth of November today is the day we're recording this. Yep, yeah, yep, twenty twenty two, and um, yeah, the, the Nasdaq is down twenty nine percent for the year. Um, its main constituents are tech stocks. Uh, this is a very important point, which I'll come back to. Um, the S and P five hundred hasn't fared as badly uh, as the Nasdaq, um, but it's still down sort of seven eight eighteen percent. Um, and Europe at the moment is around negative 10%. Um, so Australia, relatively speaking, okay, hasn't fared uh, as badly. Why is this so? Um, first of all, there's the why, and then the second point is, is it true? Okay, which, this is not a conspiracy show, but I'm, we're actually gonna talk about rural returns, real returns, um, and the, the effect that inflation has upon your return, uh, again, which I hope uh, everybody listening is on top of, and if they're not, then by the time I'm finished speaking, they will. So, um, Australia, I mean, what's the old joke? Is that Australia is houses and holes, right? So as I've perhaps ungraciously referred to a couple of minutes ago, um, is that Australia effectively digs stuff up out of the ground, exports it, we don't manufacture anything in this country. Um, the last Holden and Commodore and the Ford Falcon rolled off the production lines many, many years ago. Um, so, and again, the um, I was quite bemused to read in the um, the labour stats report from the ABS a couple of months ago that the um, the best paid sector, of course, in Australia by median weekly earnings is the mining sector. Um, and that's pretty much uh, as anybody can attest to if they've had to do any refurbishments or maintenance on their house um, in the last two years, um, shortly followed by construction. So there we have, of course, the beautiful duopoly of houses and holes, um, which is what drives the Australian economy. Um, so fortunately, uh, both of those two things have fared uh, pretty well through, through COVID, through the past two years. Um, the commodity sector, obviously, we export um, far too much as a proportion of total exports uh, go to one China, uh, one China, yeah, go to one country, which is China. Um, and um, from the construction perspective, of course, you've got you've got two issues there. First of all, um, interest rates were brought into um, an insanely negative territory, uh, real negative territory. Um, through COVID, um, making the cost of capital not quite free. Um, but Chris, I'm, I mean, I do not, I do not need to 
to explain this really any further to someone in your industry um, who watched housing prices go up 20, 25% per annum um, for two years in a row. Okay, so that was completely fueled um, by the actions of the RBA. Um, and again, coming back to that, um, Australia is protected in its um, commodity exporting um, arm, shall we say, uh, by the fact that China just will buy whatever we dig up out of the ground. So that's great when you've got a customer who will literally buy every single thing you can. Um, and it, was, it brought me a great deal of amusement um, in the first couple of months when COVID kicked off in 2020, when the Australian Prime Minister had the temerity to suggest to China that we should have an investigation as to the origins of the coronavirus. And the Chinese promptly said, righto, well, we'll just stop buying coal from you. Um, and that lasted, I think, about three or four weeks. And then they bought the coal again. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that's wonderful to have a, uh, an almost infinite level of demand for something that, as I say, you just have to dig up out of the ground. The housing sector in this country is a phenomenon. Um, and as you know, my friend, from your personal experience working and living in Canada, um, that apart from Canada and New Zealand and Sweden, nothing else comes close to the appreciation of the Australian property market. Why is that so? Um, well, apart from the cost of capital being quite cheap um, to people who can demonstrate that they can service the debt, um, which again is not a lot, um, providing they've got a decent salary, um, hopefully integrated somehow into the mining sector. Um, but the combination of the RBA, the government, APRA, who is the, uh, the banking regulator, and ASIC, um, I think that they've planted the flag pretty firmly in Terra Australis and said that we will, the property sector won't be going down on our watch. Now, when you've got those four bodies, three of which are regulators, sorry, two of which are regulators, one's the government and one's the country central bank. Um, I mean, again, I, I read market commentary not a lot. Um, I, I prefer to read numbers, honestly, um, because you can't spin numbers, mm. right? Numbers can be mathematically falsified, but when you read numbers, you're not reading someone else's opinion of those numbers. I'm actually just reading the data. But there are a couple of guys around the world who I do read, um, and there's one guy in Singapore who is an excellent writer, and... Um, he regularly takes the mickey out of the RBA, um, quoting which line and which paragraph they have mentioned in the minutes per month or what have you, per meeting, um, of their unlimited support for for the Australian housing market. Right. So it's um, yeah. And again, for, you know, from a foreigner's perspective, if I can call myself that, which is what I've been for, yeah, probably significant proportion of my working life um, like it's a source of amusement w when when people in, in America and and people in in Europe when we look at Australia like it it is literally fascinating um, you sort of you look at it and you think wow this is as good a lay down as you're going to get 
The only problem with that is that Australia represents about 2% of global capital markets. So, um, not to be in any way demeaning at all, um, but from an investing perspective, Australia is hardly on the radar, right? So when you've got big, big players in the States and big players in Europe um, who need to deploy capital, um, the Australian stock market, um, you know, they, they could come in and buy up a significant part of the stock market fairly quickly. Okay, so going back to what I said before about other numbers real. So inflation, the last inflation number that the ABS reported um, for the 12 months to maybe September, I think, yeah, reported quarterly to September, was 7.3%. So by the way, we are, Australia is one of the only countries whose statistical reporting body, the ABS, reports inflation every three months, right? <laughs> every, other, every other country does it every four weeks. Anyway, that's just me being me. Um, so 7.3%. But if your, if your stock market returns are down 4%, okay, so this is where we can take a little segue into real returns. Okay, so when, when a financial planner or a stockbroker puts something in front of you and says, hey, look at this, this investment did 10% this year. If inflation is 3%, and bearing in mind that the RBA is actually quite happy to have inflation, if, if inflation was at 3%, the RBA would be, would be quite stoked with themselves today, right? Instead of being asleep at the wheel and as they have been for two years. Anyway, um, so if someone's put something in front of you and it says we've just achieved a 10% return, but you go and look at the ABS and it says inflation's 3%, then the actual purchasing power of your money, of your investment, it's actually only made 7%, right? So you've got to take the return, the nominal return, subtract from that what the inflation level is, and that's your real return. Okay, it's your, it's your, it's what you receive in your hand after inflation, which we believe is a government-caused tax. It, it's it's effectively something. It is a miss. It is the end result of fiscal mismanagement. Chris, in my again humble or not so um, professional opinion, as in. Not so humble, not not so professional. It's my very professional opinion, and perhaps not so humble. Right. So moving on. So unusual of you to be humble. Yes. No. It's uh, you know it's it's that time of day. You know, <laughs> I fall off a cliff or when the hubris clock strikes uh, whatever hour it is. <laughs> okay. So the Australian stock market has lost four percent, and inflation is seven point three percent. Right. Okay. So in real terms, your your average Aussie now again this is this is purely if you have bought the stock market, right? The ASX two hundred, and you sorry, or an index or something. An, an index, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and you've bought the market capitalization weighted index, one ETF mm -hmm. that holds twenty five percent big four banks. Probably another ten percent BHP and Rio, right? Market cap weighted. You've at, you're actually down eleven percent this year. Mm. Um, yeah, as uh, as a as a famous man once said. You know, I need to eat 
and real returns. Okay? So, so someone, if you've made 2% in a year where inflation's been 7.3, you've still lost money. Right? So, anyway, relative to the rest of the world, as I said before with those other inflation numbers, um, Australia is doing okay. Um, for the aforementioned reasons of being in the very advantage advantaged position that we have a consumer um, to the north of us uh, who will buy literally everything we can dig up out of the ground and then the construction industry in, the, in this country benefits from the banking sector which is effectively you know, a protected species as, um, as one of my colleagues likes to say um, and protected as I said before by two regulators but government um, governments tend to do things that they know their constituents will vote them back in again for next time um, and the RBA blessed be Australia you know what, what a great position to be in anyway so Marcel this is where you get the chance to tell us how you've been going in comparison to the Australian market and global markets yep cool um, well we've had a pretty good year um, in the global macro hedge fund that we run, as I said before, that trades foreign exchange, commodities, uh, bonds and equities, of course. Um, we're up about 18% so far. Um, and we have taken a fairly, not fairly, we've taken a moderately bearish position um, going into December um, because, quite frankly, again, the market is... The market is quite schizophrenic. Um, the market is reactive to press conferences. Um, the economy, I mean, we run a quant hedge fund, right? So at our core, we run a couple of thousand econometric models per month to determine what we believe or what our, the function, the economic functions that we've written into the algorithms to believe um, are to identify value, okay? And what happened in November with Powell talking about, you know, perhaps he's ready to slow the pace of the rate rises in America. Um, going into, into 2023, you know, the market shot up 4 or 5% in some parts. Um, and as we said 10, 15 minutes ago, um, in the space of seven or eight days now in the US they're down three and a half percent you know he, he giveth and he taketh away but all it really is is the market um, overreacting um, to what they perceive to be good news or what, what they perceived in November to be good news and of course <coughs> the problem that we have now is um, and I think we may have actually known each other when I, I first came across this quote the first guy who wrote it actually was a Canadian. He worked for a Canadian, um, for, um, what did he work for? Anyway, Tonto, Toronto Dominion Bank. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he, he was a strategist there. And um, he was talking about, and I was completely, so I was in London during the GFC, um, and he was talking about this new thing about 
printing money, what the central banks have done to, to rescue the world from the GFC. And he coined the phrase, I believe he was the first person that I read who used it, to say that this whole money printing and quantitative easing stuff was literally methadone that you give to a heroin addict. Yeah. And I thought to myself, that's really cool. A, that he works in a bank cool enough to actually let him say something like that, where the compliance lawyers weren't obviously you know, reviewing every third word that he wrote. Um, but the analogy was, was incredible. Um, and a little segue, you know, for anybody who actually knows the origins of methadone, it was actually a German invention in the Second World War, which they gave to soldiers to effectively pep them up because they didn't want to go to the front line. Oh. Right? So it's a, um, yeah, I find it a, a very intriguing analogy. So, of course, I used it. Um, but not being a dishonourable man, I always would give credit to the, um, to the Canadian that I first read who used the phrase. Um, so, I have been one of those people in the incredible minority um, who, you know, I mean, I've, as you know, I've, I've done TV um, and I'm quoted in uh, certain publications that financial markets people would be familiar with um, but I'm not the type of person who is going to get um, a couple of columns dedicated to my thoughts written in the Australian mm -hmm. right yeah. um, but I can I can assure you there is a cohort of people like me um, who have been around in the markets for you know about 30 years um, as I have, um, and Neil, my, my fellow director, um, he was working um, in 1987 mm -hmm. when the market collapsed. So a lot of this stuff, and again, the beauty, of, the beauty of running a quant hedge fund um, and having uh, econometrics and time series data, and again, personally, me with a particular bent with history and loving to read, um, is that you're not trapped in this sort of stockbroker, um, salesman, oh, I'm just going to talk about whatever I've read in the last three weeks and then just spew that out in a sales pitch to a potential client, right? So it's not that I've seen this before, but there are, you know, as Mark Twain is often misquoted from having said that history, um, history doesn't repeat um, but it sure does rhyme. Um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, Chris, okay? We've had various iterations of what's happening now happen before in history. Okay, so, um, so we, we've seen some of this stuff before. As I said before, we've positioned our funds quite well. Um, the Global Macro Fund is up 18-ish percent, you know, give, give or take a percent, <laughs> depending on what day it is. Um, the standout for us that's done particularly well for us this year has been our commodities sleeve, um, which in Australian dollar terms, it's actually a US dollar denominated product, um, but for an Australian audience, um, that one's up almost 66% for the year. Um, and the beauty of running a, a hedge fund 
and for one of those few, uh, sorry, not few, <coughs> for, <laughs> for one of the, um, the type of hedge funds who actually hedge, um, we made the vast proportion of majority of those returns sure, like in the first six to seven months of this year. Um, but then we, uh, so I said before, we're predominantly value hunters, right? Uh, but we also do have, <coughs> excuse me, strict adherence um, in our risk management protocols um, to what um, price signal is doing or what other people would call momentum, mm -hmm. right? For want of a better term. Um, so effectively, come August, September, when things started to um, to come off the boil a little bit, um, we effectively reversed a lot of those long positions. So we've made a, a ton of money, mm -hmm. um, being long oil and natural gas um, through the first six, seven months of the year. Um, locked in the profits and went short and made money as they all came down again. Um, yeah, so it's been a very, um, a very challenging year for equities because as bond yields go up, bonds of course are perceived to be a risk-free investment, although that, um, that issue about real rates of returns can actually bite you even harder in bond land, right? So fixed income at the moment in the US is paying, you know, you can get something around 4% risk-free, but inflation still six, seven percent, right? So even though your capital is um, probably safer at the moment um, than in equities, um, you're still not, you know, you've, you've still got someone's boot on your head keeping you underwater. Um, we run, in the hedge fund, um, we run what's known as a market neutral type system. So to keep it, you know, the 20 second elevator explanation, um, um, so we invest in, uh, in America, Japan, Europe, and a little bit in Australia. Um, let's say in Europe, we have in the fund $100 to invest in Europe, right? We'll take 50 bucks of that and invest that long in positions we've chosen, mm -hmm. and we'll have 50 bucks that we'll invest short. Um, they, the two buckets will react to different drivers, if you like, um, and what I what I don't expect nor want to happen is the long bucket to go up 5% in one month, so I've gotten all the longs right, I'm really clever, and then all the stocks that I thought were dog's water, we make 5% on them as well, right? That, that, that's not what I want. Mm. I'm not concerned about doing that. What I'm happy with is I don't care which one I actually get wrong, I really don't. I just want one of them to make, let's say, 2%, mm -hmm. and the other one to lose 1%. Mm -hmm. That's money. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And before you get to the next question, which I'm sure is coming, because um, every interview I ever do, they always ask me this question, is where do you see the market going in the next 12 months? Mm -hmm. Right? Is that what we do in this particular bucket of strategy is a complete absence of hubris, right? So I started off working for an economist 
Um, and I can tell you that profession is the most overpaid profession on the planet. Okay? So what we do, we're value hunters, right? So of course we have a, an opinion um, that I can back up by a model to say what my model thinks the market will be worth in 12 months' time. <clears throat> but as I've said in a presentation which you attended um, five years or so ago, um, to quote an English economist, um, a very humble man, uh, who said that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, we don't, you know, pe people who think that we've made 18% this year in the macro fund, or we've made 65% this year in the commodities fund, mm -hmm. um, because we've got everything right, they're actually missing the point, okay? We've had a notion mathematically supported of where we think it's going, but what we actually do is, because we look at, from an equities perspective, mm -hmm. we look at data, uh, I mean, America's the best, right? They are the best. They go back, their data data sets go back to 1871 with reliable stock market, clean stock market data. Mm -hmm. So I can look at that and I can say, on average, and this is the magic word, right? On average, the US stock market in nominal terms will probably generate returns of about 7% per annum. Okay? I'm sort of spitballing, but it's around that region. In Australia, the commensurate data is somewhere between 9 and 10% mm -hmm. per annum, right? Um, depending on how, which time series you're looking at, but the RBA's got a pretty good one. <coughs> Australia's higher um, because the dividend payout in this country is about four times what the US dividend payout, average payout is. So we can look at data from 1871, and I can, I can look you in the eye, and I can say, on average, the US stock market will make 7% per annum. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, 7% compounded, right? It's great. Like, that is mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, the only problem is, for you and I, to sit down together and say, you know, let's each chuck in X amount of dollars into a kitty, mm -hmm. and uh, when we're old, we'll sit down together, and at 7% per annum, we're going to be sense. worth, yeah, yeah, we're going to be worth tons, yeah. okay? Now, we could mathematically do that. The only problem is, for us to actually reap that benefit, that beer that we have, to, to pat each other on the back, mm -hmm. we would have to be 100 years old. And we would have had to invest that very first dollar when we were born. Okay, so the 7% per annum, right. it is an average number. Okay, oh. so in across, across a time period of 100 years, I can statistically state with absolute validity that you'll get 7% per annum out of the US stock market. Mm -hmm. What an economist or a salesman won't tell you is that in order to achieve that 7% per annum, mm -hmm. there will have been years where you lost 52% mm -hmm. in 12 months. In 52 weeks, you will have lost half your money. Mm -hmm. 
there will have been other years when you made 37% in a 52-week period, in a 12-month period. But you don't get to choose which years they are, right? So it's the great... Um, it's the great lie in finance that anybody who understands statistics knows immediately that it's a sales pitch, okay? So coming back to my 50 bucks long in Europe and 50 bucks short, I know that over 100 years, and again, the, the data is commensurate to, to Europe as well, um, although European equity markets don't return um, as highly as American or Australian. But I know that, let's say, eight out of 12 years, this long side will actually make money. Again, I, I don't get to choose which are the eight good years and which are the four bad years out of a 12-year period in the same way that I don't get to choose in 100 years which are the, you know, oh, let's all just cherry-pick you know, I, I, had, I had one guy like 20 years ago actually say to me, but if you know that, why don't you just not invest in the years where it goes down 50%? And I, yeah, anyway, we're, we're not friends anymore. Um, my, my patience levels and tolerance levels have decreased with, with every year that I've gotten older. And I guess just while you're talking about that, what's the difference between what you do and long only? Sure. In that situation. Um, well, I mean, I met with I met with a prospective client um, a couple of months ago, about one and a half months ago, and he had just been to a financial planner um, for his review, and amongst amongst other stocks. Um, so, so this guy gave him a portfolio of about 40 stocks, mm -hmm. all of which were long only. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, a long only um, portfolio is something where you buy the stock, let's say Commonwealth Bank mm -hmm. or BHP, mm -hmm. and again I'm paraphrasing, but you pay 100 bucks for that share and you hope that in 10 years time that thing might be worth 120, 140 bucks or something, that'd be nice. Mm -hmm. If along the way, from 100 to 140, um, and this is what happened to this guy, his planner had put him into Magellan, mm -hmm. um, which is down, I think, about 50 something, 55% this year, having a cracking year. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and to be fair, it's a big bad fund. Yeah, yeah, well, this is a. ASX 200 stock. Yeah. Um, oh, the John the stock. Yeah, so this, yeah, right. this is the company yeah. that makes all the management fees and the performance fees right. okay. from all of the, the gotcha. billion dollar funds, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said to the guys, like, it's materially lower than what I paid for it. Mm -hmm. Right, materially. Yeah, yeah. And the financial planner said to him, well, yeah, this is a this is a buy and hold stock. So a long only position is something that you either want to hold for a very long time mm -hmm. and never sell, mm -hmm. 
or to be cheeky. Um, it's something that you bought hoping it would go up, but then it loses half its value and you hang on to it because you can't emotionally bring yourself to crystallise the loss. And, 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 and realise you made a mistake. Yeah. Which humans actually love doing. Right? Humans are really, really good at selling at the bottom and buying at the top. Okay? We are hardwired, and I, I'll say we because I'm a human, um, but, <laughs> but that was, if I could do this, that was that. By yeah, sorry. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm human, um, but I run a quant systematic hedge fund, and that actually hashtag nerd, yeah, hashtag geek, yeah, um, hashtag plays three musical instruments. <laughs> okay, so what that but what that actually stops me doing, yeah is um, get around the hard wiring in human DNA that served us really well. Yeah. Like when the saber-toothed tiger was coming for us, yeah. or when, I'm, you know, when the lion's coming at me and I've got a spear, served us really well, served our forebears really well. Mm. Um, investing in capital markets, mm-mm, mm-mm, no, it'll, it, it'll burn you. So a long only portfolio or a long-only fund yeah. has one option available to it. Yeah. You buy something low and you strap in and you hope that if you are eventually going to sell it, it'll have gone up in price because the only way you can make money in a long-only position mm-hmm. is if it goes from 100 bucks to more than 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. So what we do we do that as well. So we buy things at 100 bucks that I hope will go to 110. Mm-hmm. But we can short. So shorting means that I identify a stock um, or a commodity or a bond or a currency that is trading at, for example, 100 bucks. And I think that this thing is a steaming pile of the proverbial. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually worth 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. So I will open a short position. Um, we can probably get into the mechanics of that in a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But effectively, I put up money that says, I believe it's going to go from 100 bucks to 50 bucks, mm-hmm. or even 80. Keep, keep it simple, right? 100 bucks to 80 bucks. If it goes to $80, I make 20 bucks, which is 20%. Mm. Um, some people who don't understand how the world works, think that shorting is evil. Mm -hmm. In the GFC, the German finance minister literally called hedge funds who made money in the GFC, and just to be clear, made investors, as in mums and dads and people, Mm -hmm. made them money, Mm -hmm. right? Stopped their savings from falling 45% Mm -hmm. in the GFC. Um, the German finance minister called people who shorted locusts. <laughs> okay? So, again, to put some colour on that, if that stock at 100 bucks that I think is dog's water mm-hmm. that is going to go to 80 bucks, I actually have to put in 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Now, if that stock goes to $150 and I'm wrong, 
over a certain time period, then I lose 50%, mm. right? Exactly. So someone who is shorting, um, and again, I can point anyone who's interested to a vast body of research on this, um, or we can just rewind the tape to what I said five minutes ago, is that markets do tend to go up over the long run, Yeah. right? Eight out of every 12 years, the market will go up. So statistically, statistically, any short position that you are putting on, you better damn well know what you're doing because mathematically, the odds of capital markets, again, I'm speaking mm. very broadly, mate, mm. um, are against you, mm. right? But, so, we are able to make money if things go up, mm-hmm. just like the long only guys, mm-hmm. but as 2022 has demonstrated, um, and also in 2020, in the first quarter of 2020, when global markets fell 36% in three months, um, we were up 5%, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so my, my hedge fund has established an almost 10 year track record of actually making serious returns um, in market conditions where the market has fallen double digits in like super, super quick um, periods of time. Which is why I said before, going back to that European example of 50 bucks long or 50 bucks short and most economists are fools, is that I know what's gonna happen over the long run with the law of averages, mm-hmm. right? But what we actually do is we completely remove any arrogance of saying I'm a good forecaster and I think that because Putin's done this and because Xi has done this and because Christine Lagarde and Janet Yellen are so smart and really good at their jobs um, with Jerome Powell as well that I think this is going to happen, okay? Now, that that is an opinion, right, which some economists can back with a model but if you want me to build you a mathematical model that says that blue is actually green and red is really yellow, I can back engineer that for you, Chris, okay? And, and you know this yourself with your finance degree background, right? Um, so I, I can deconstruct and then reconstruct an econometric model, no problems. What we, what we do over here is we say every month we rebalance the hedge fund um, again, that is a risk mitigation tool. Um, there are many reasons why, why we regularly rebalance um, in finance. Um, it's not without its costs. It, there is a transaction cost that, that is incurred, um, but there is sufficient literature to say that it actually delivers over the long run. Um, but I can tell you, if we didn't do what we did, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase. The fact that we did that we invest the way we do mm-hmm. is why in 2020, when markets fell 36%, we made money. And, and it is why uh, this year, when the NASDAQ is down almost 30%, mm-hmm. uh, we are up almost 20. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's, it's systematic. And as I said before, with the, the joke about the saber-toothed tigers and the lions, um, there's an excellent book um, called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, um, which I'll send you the link to and what have you. You can 
recommended to people, but it, it delves into why humans are so bad <laughs> at sticking to an investment strategy mm-hmm. and seeing it through mm-hmm. um, when everything in your inner core and inner fiber is telling you to sell quick, crystallize, I've stuffed up. I, oh my God, I can't tell this story in the pub. Fear or flight. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And so in all of this, we've heard that the Australian market's actually done pretty well. Yeah, it has, yeah. Well, What's it's, the value? It's, fall, it's fallen, but relatively speaking. What's the value that you see in being global rather than just in Australia? Well, the thing about being global, I mean, this is a funny year to compare it because I, I did initially say I'd come back to the point about the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ is the American tech index, right? Now, Australia ostensibly has basically one tech stock of size, which is owned by those two um, people in Sydney who I think are trying to turn AGL into something other than which it is, which will be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Chris, that's my nice way of saying that Australia is bereft of a technology sector in our stock market. Mm-hmm. Right? We have four banks which are unassailable. We have um, BHP, Rio, Fortescue, the coal companies that nobody wants to talk about, mm-hmm. Whitehaven, which is only up 270% this year. Um, so, the diversification the diversification argument is actually about, from a stock market perspective, going outside Australia to get access to stocks, to sectors in an economy that we don't have here. Okay? That, that is the bottom line. We, again, I speak, as you know, I speak in very broad brushes, right? So don't crucify me for being generalist. Um, we have no pharmaceutical sector. Really, I mean, CSL is a huge player, but it's one stock. Like, we don't actually have an industry. Mm-hmm. And again, what is the stock market? Go back to uh, Warren Buffett, you know, whose favorite metric for assessing valuation, be it over or under, of a, of a stock market is the, uh, the percentage of total stock market capitalization to the country's GDP, mm-hmm. right? The proportion of that. So, um, for that metric to work, you actually need comparators of um, an industry that's operating in your economy that then goes and lists on the exchange. And, mate, we simply don't have it. We don't have it, right? So, if you only invest in Australia, as I said much earlier in the um, conversation, we are about 2% of global capital markets, okay? So... Depends what you're after, but if you're after technology, if you're after pharmaceuticals, if you're after serious heavy manufacturing, mm-hmm. and I mean anything from um, like high-end um, precision steel milling to making aircraft carriers, fighter jets, aeroplanes, um, chemical factories, that sort of stuff, 
we, we ain't got it, buddy. All right? So diversification, again, the, the ultimate argument for diversification is to achieve superior risk-adjusted returns, um, you know, which is an awesome phrase which will put 97% of the world's population to sleep. Um, but part and parcel of that is, suffice to say, um, spreading your investment positions. I, I hate using the term bets, right? Spreading your investment positions. Um, and to do that, to get your money out of Australia, um, you can go into um, sectors of a stock market that you literally can't buy in Australia. And so, you mentioned commodities earlier, but yep. what are some of the key trades that you've had really play out for you over the last 12 months? That haven't played out? Or that, have, that have, that have worked out for you? Yeah, I was kind of hoping you'd ask me the ones that hadn't played you out. Can, you can talk then, through that first if you and like. And then I could, I could reenact the, um, the wonderful response that that chick who was the CEO of the, uh, the Bitcoin of, FG, oh, okay. of Alameda Research gave. I mean, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, I, yeah. The, the old joke, as you know, is um, you be very wary of anybody in financial services who only talks about their winners mm -hmm. and never talks about their losses, yeah. right? And um, I don't know, again, if, uh, if this is becoming quickly a joke just between you and me, but I, I would hope that other people listening to this, you know, if they've, if they've kept listening this long, um, then they probably have seen the video of that chick. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> anyway. Um, so what do you want to know? Stuff that's actually gone well? Walk me through what went bad, what went wrong, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, what went bad, what went right. Sorry. Okay. The, the what went bad stuff is actually, it's easier to answer for me if for no other reason, um, not that I self-flagellate for the bad positions that I've taken, which mm -hmm. I do, mm -hmm. and I think that's a, that's a hallmark of a good fund manager, to, to go back and just punish yourself mercilessly um, to see what went wrong. Was I right in the first place to do that? Mm -hmm. And again, for us, we're systematic. Mm -hmm. So there is no real, was it right? Mm -hmm. It's, was the data right? What, was yeah. the data right? You know, the signal was there, so we followed the signal. Um, but more importantly, it went wrong, okay, so suck it up. But next time, you know, are our protocols sufficiently robust that it caught it in time, this time, mm -hmm. and it won't happen again in the future? So to mitigate that, and the short answer here um, is really me telling you... Um, what our risk management protocols are, right? So we trade, we would trade around, sorry, not trade, we run models on about 1,600, maybe a bit more, maybe, maybe 1,700 individual stock models of companies in America, Europe, Japan, and Australia. Um, we run models of the major currency pairs, of which there are not too many, um, and we model 18 commodities. Um, now, for each of those positions, if something goes wrong, we have what we call gates 
in the systems, um, which will initiate stop loss protocol, which is a really fancy way of saying if it drops X percent, um, and for most of our stuff, the, the absolute kick out will be 10%, mm-hmm. um, we are simply gone. Mm. Now, it may not be 10%, but the worst one that I've actually got in mind for you was actually a natural gas position, which we've lost, which, sorry, which we lost 18% on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and again, that's not a, um, that's not a coincidence or, or an error, there are 18 commodity models, and that particular loss we lost 18% on, and I remember it, mm-hmm. because it's more than 10, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the reason why it happened um, is because it gapped, and gapped uh, is a term that says um, you've hit a stop loss point where your system says, okay, it's down 10%, you now need to close the position, mm-hmm. um, which is great because it completely takes away any human emotion to say, oh, but I think natural gas will come it's back. Right, yeah. If I just hold on for four more days, yeah. mummy, it'll be okay. It, it's never okay, mm. right? And the, ch- the, the one in 10 times that it is okay, that was luck, mm. right? So it's gone to the 10% level, the signal erupts and says, close down the position, you go in, you try and get it out of VWAP, so you don't want to get you know, taken taken out even further. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vol- the price movement can be in, in commodities in particular, so commodities and foreign exchange are both very volatile um, asset classes. And of course, as discussed before, um, what's had the most fun in 2022? Natural gas. Um, both Henry, well, Henry Hub, the Dutch, TTF um, and of course the UK natural gas market, um, like off the charts le- levels of vol. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we got we gapped, and the uh, earliest I could get it out was the position ended up costing us eighteen uh, percent instead of losing only ten percent. Okay, but go back to your diversification point, and this is a um, feeds into that. In the, in the pure commodity sleeve, that was 1 18th, so we run 18 commodity positions in the commodity sleeve. Mm-hmm. That was 1 18th of the whole thing, right? Yeah. In the global macro fund, uh, I think when that happened, we had about a 30% allocation of the fund to commodities, mm-hmm. okay? So out of 100 bucks. Yep, yeah. so out of 100 bucks, 30 bucks was in commodities, yeah. and it was $30 divided by 18 yeah, yeah. was that position, and then I lost 18% on that yeah. one eighteenth. Yeah. okay? So, diversification. So, as I said to you, it's actually easier for me. Um, I'm not saying I'm better than that chick at Alameda. <laughs> um, I mean, I've just sat here and said to you, <laughs> I've just lost one X-teenth of a position. I mean, she torched 12 billion bucks in <laughs> yeah, God knows how how long. Um, yeah, great dress sense too. <laughs> anyway, um, so the easy answers for me, because we run a systematic fund, are the ones that went bad, right? Because I remember them. Um, ask me what went well, 
Whitehaven coal went really well. Right. 270% well. Um, natural gas went well on the way up. Brent, West Texas went well on the way up. Um, and intra-months, um, we've had good wins on certain um, global equity markets when they had good months. As I said before, the 50 bucks that's long yeah. has done really well. Yeah. You know, we've had a couple of months this year where the kickback has been, in again, my humble professional opinion, stupid, has been stupid. Um, and we're about to realise on Friday um, a pretty significant uh, FX position in the Aussie dollar mm-hmm. against the US dollar, mm-hmm. which will make our December return. Yeah, we're only eight or nine days in, but by the thirty first of December, should uh, should be a nice number. So, just thinking about the normal way that an investor would invest, partially in equities, partially in bonds. Can you walk us through how bonds went this year? Um. I probably uh, pay the most attention to to American bonds, yeah. um, which are down around about. Well, again, it depends on what what tenor um, in the market you're looking at. But let, let's roughly say around about twelve percent, mm-hmm. as in lost yeah, about twelve yeah. percent. Not real, nominal. Nominal. Yeah. So in real terms, they're down about nineteen percent. Yeah. Um, and this is, an, this is a, an asset class that is not supposed to rip your face off when markets fall. You know, the bond market is what is supposed to be your ballast. It is yeah. supposed to be your keel when markets go south. Mm-hmm. So you've had the, the double whammy this year of losing 18% in your equities portfolio, mm-hmm. if you're long only, and the old you know, financial planner model of the old 60-40, which has stood most investors in good stead, mm-hmm. to be fair, um, for about 30 or 40 years, which, as I note, is no coincidence because we've had a bond, uh, sorry, a bull market in bonds for about 30 or 40 years, right? Um, so there's many articles now written about have we actually, has 2022 witnessed the death of the, the 60-40 portfolio? Um, well, I never really liked it anyway. Um, for the simple reality is, is that if you actually buy a bond on issue and you hold it to maturity, your actual return is zero anyway. Because that's how a bond works. <laughs> and has there actually been some wisdom in holding property instead of bonds yeah. over the last point? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, as, we, as, I, as I threw to you um, earlier, you know, uh, in, in most markets, this most global markets, in the last couple of years, the capital appreciation of property as an asset class has gone up 20 to 25%. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were um, wise enough, uh, shall we say, um, to buy property in certain pockets or capital cities that you think were going to have uh, additional benefits um, to what was happening in the post-COVID world, then you've done even better. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about property, what, what saves people in property as opposed to what crucifies people in capital markets is that the transaction costs to getting out of property 
are much higher. Mm -hmm. It is not an easy process. Mm -hmm. right? any, any punk off the street can log into their ComSec account and hit sell mm -hmm. when they see that BHP is down 10% mm -hmm. and they get, they get nervous, right? They can sell. Mm -hmm. If you've got a house or an apartment, it is a laborious process. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you don't mind me saying this, um, but like, it is not something that you just do in 24 hours when well, you sell a property. Well, the other thing is getting a price correctly is not, a, not an easy thing either. And the price in property is what the purchaser is prepared to pay. Correct. Um, and again, not everyone moves at the speed of a thousand gazelles, mm. as my mum used to say. Um, the, I mean, again, the beauty here with property, as I said before, and I hope I've, I hope I rammed the point home, is that it's pretty much a protected species in Australia. Um, but the fact that there are transaction costs, like you've got to pay the lawyers, mm -hmm. of course, mm -hmm. um, the stamp duty, etc. If you if you're up for stamp duty, what have you, um, but it slows people down. And as we second guess themselves. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but as we said before, the problem with investing is the person doing the investing, mm -hmm. right? With property, it's almost like you've got this built-in gate that stops people doing something stupid. I know. Yeah. Right. On at ten p.m. on a Saturday night, we've had a couple of drinks. Exactly. Like yeah. I'll, I'll take the offer. Yeah. yeah he's lowballed me fifty k, yeah. but you know what? I'll take the offer. Yeah. Right. Um, from the drunk phone call to the to the agent yeah. to say I'll accept the label offer. The agent gets him in the office on Monday, calms him down, says, "No, listen, I can get you more than this. This was rah rah rah." Problem averted, mm. right? If he's on the Comsec screen, it's finished. It's gone, baby. Yeah. He he sold that position and he has crystallised the loss yeah. and he's dusted. Yeah. Um, so, th so that that argument that's purely on the on the the capital value of the asset mm -hmm. um, argument. Um, on top of that, uh, again, I, I don't know if you're talking about owner-occupier or, or rental, but mm -hmm. um, clearly, with from a yield perspective, looking at property versus bonds, um, up until I would suggest, and I'm very happy for you to correct me on this, um, up until very recent times, um, when yields have been getting squeezed, um, a little bit more. When appreciation goes through the roof, suddenly yeah. yields yeah. get hurt a little bit. Yeah. Which means that, yes, what he taketh on this hand, sorry, giveth on this hand, he's yeah. taken from the other hand. So even though your yield might be getting a little bit more compressed from a rental property mm -hmm. in the past year or the commensurate time period, your, your cap value has, your cap value of the property has increased as well. Yeah. But, <coughs> excuse me, um, Go back to the rental yield, and again, um, if it's a renter, you don't necessarily want to buy in a hyper affluent suburb. You want to buy in a suburb where the yield is the best. Yeah. Because if you're buying in a suburb um, where the average property price is 1.5 million, mm -hmm. it's like, well, how much rent do you think you can actually extract at the margin, right, out of someone? To go to live in a one and a half or two million dollar house, mm. right there, it, yeah, it's not uh, it's not a linear relationship. Mm. Um, so there are opportunities to go a little further afield and get a higher yield, 
which by that point in time will already be higher than what the risk-free rate in bonds are going to be. And again, you can have a, a glance at any of the major bond funds in Australia this year, um, corporate bonds, SOBs, it's been a bloodbath, right? So uh, again, not to be glib, Chris, but when you talk about property versus bonds this year, there's almost no comparison, mate. Like it's, yeah. And so how do you see the next six to 12 months playing out? And uh, what are some of the key variables you're looking at that could change things? I, I told you, I knew you were gonna ask me a question, <laughs> right? Um, okay. This is where all the economist training comes yeah, in. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Auto Q. in 12 months time, we firmly believe that the Australian stock market will be 15% higher than where it is. Um, God help me, shoot me now. Um, so, the outlook, um, yeah, mate, I think if I answer that question, I am literally repudiating what I've said in the past. Is it, the is it well, can you just answer this? Is it a good time to be able to go short? To be able to go short? Yes. I think anybody who has the option to have the capacity to go short, I think, yes, it would be wonderful to have, <laughs> to, to, to have that quiver, uh, sorry, that arrow in your quiver. Um, look, a, a, again, an account. The, the common misconception is that, and I know I said that before about Buffett's favourite indicator being the total market cap weighted proportion versus GDP, but stock markets and economies do not, they are not two trains running on parallel tracks, mm -hmm. right? They both lie to each other. Stock markets, by their very nature, um, are filled by speculators, right? Um, who are making, and I will use this word this time, who are making bets based on where they think supportive economic conditions are going to be 12 months hence, mm -hmm. okay? So the, the, the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism. The real economy is not. It, it is what it is, right? Um, so, the conditions, I mean, Lowe said himself, the RBA, the esteemed RBA governor in Martin Place, said this week that he expects inflation to be 8%, right? This is the same dude that told us, what, a year and a half ago? Um, that there was no inflation, it's all good, we don't need to raise rates, no problems. Until? Until... Was it 2024? Yeah, that was a good memory. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I, I regularly go into what I call bleach therapy to um, that if I've ever accidentally read something from a central banker, I, I go into therapy to have it removed from my, my data repository, which is what humans call brain. Um, I mean, these people are like, they're just a disgrace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We come in pieces. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's a joke. It, to be frank, it is farcical. It really is. Um, as I've commented to, to another friend, um, one of my favourite lines in 2022 
has been, you had one job to do. One job. Inflation comes around about once every 40 years. Metronomically, like it will come every 40 years. You're getting paid a couple of hundred thousand bucks a year and your sole responsibility and job, purpose on this earth is that A, you see it coming and when it does come, B, you affect immediately policy decisions that nip it in the bud. Mm -hmm. Because we all know that inflation is literally the dragon. Like it's the tiger that once you let it out of the cage, you're not putting it back in. And they have all screwed the pooch. Lagarde, the ECB, the entire Bank of England should be taken out and break them ranted. Um, and um, the Fed, I despair. And um, as you said before, our esteemed central bankers in this country um, told us that it was all good and um, don't expect anything till 2024, no problems. And gosh, this week it's gonna be 8%, is it? Hmm. Hmm. So, you'll forgive me when I blanch at your question of where do I see markets in, <laughs> markets in 12 months' time. So, uh, inflation of 8% is not good. Um, the Australian consumer forgot in 2007 how to stop spending. And when you look at the savings rates in Australia, they dipped a little bit in 2009, and after that, it was just, pardon the pun, off to the races again. Um, but that's good for an economy, right? So people spending is good for the economy because it requires the manufacturing of goods, not that we do much of that, um, but mainly services provision in this country, which is what drives our GDP as well, which is good. Um, but the problem is, you know, this whole wage increases, etc., etc. it's almost like some of these people have never actually studied a single, a single piece of economics in their life. So... Um, providing the construction sector keeps keeps doing what it's doing, supported by the aforementioned quad protectorate, shall I say, providing China um, gets out of its zero COVID fantasy, um, gets its workforce uh, back into the production lines and needs to buy more coal and more iron ore and more copper off us, off Australia, that's fine. Um, so the outlook here, Chris, I would dare hazard to say um, there are more supportive economic conditions um, than definitely in America and definitely in Europe. It's a relative world, right? Um, and in the, in the hedge fund, again, that's what we do. We're, we're relative investing across across different markets as well, which goes back to the diversification thing. If the only football field you can play on is Australia and you are right in your prognostication that you think it's gonna be a bad year next year, hypothetically, then what's your alternative? Like if you have no global diversification, then you just, you don't invest at all for 12 months. And I can tell you, there's always something going on somewhere in the world, like money never sleeps. And capital always wants to find a home somewhere. And if people have made it this far, to be fair, we've covered a lot of ground. We sure have. Yep. That was, <laughs> how, a, that was a really good 15-minute interview, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how, how could they potentially invest with you? 
Well, if they're listening to this, then they know you. So, so you can tell them where to go. Um, but they can come to our website, uh, which is Arminius Capital. You're going to make them spell that? Without a K. Without a K, yeah. yeah. Arminius, A-R-M-I-N-I-U-S, capital.com.au. Um, there'll be email contacts there. Um, otherwise, speak to my dear friend Chris, and he'll put you in contact with me personally. And uh, I know we've covered off on plenty, but before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to cover off on? Well, enough about me. Should we talk about me? <laughs> that's what that's what this is about. Oh no! Look, I think I think that's more than sufficient um, for this evening. And as I said, there are a number of um, points that we could strip out from tonight's conversation. Um, I, I'm very big on education. Like again, you, you would be. I don't know if you would be. You'd probably be surprised the amount of people um, that there are out there in the community and, and society who, because they've worked very, very hard, they've actually accumulated a, a pretty serious nest egg, mm-hmm. right? Some serious wealth. Um, and I know a lot of people, um, and my, my parents were these sort of people, right? Um, who just believed in bricks and mortar mm-hmm. and houses, mm-hmm. not because they didn't believe that they could make money in the stock market as well mm-hmm. and that it was a diversifier, that they, they know or they think they know that they should have a bit of diversification, yeah. but the problem is they don't understand the stock market. Yeah. And the really, and you know what, that, that actually says to me, Chris, that that is a smart person. Yeah. So the mark, the hallmark of an intelligent person is somebody who knows that he doesn't know how to play that game. Yeah. So he's not going to go and just try to play it. Yeah. He's going to make the conscious decision to actually not play it. Yeah. And I respect that. The only, the only issue is... Um, is that it's one of trust, is that you, you actually have to find someone in financial services who is not a smooth-talking criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, yeah, that's, that, that can be a, uh, a, a difficult um, uh, subject to, um, to surmount. Um, but they are, again, talking in like 40, 50-year investment horizons, like proper personal family planning, mm-hmm. um, family wealth planning um, perspective, they're doing themselves a disservice by sticking to one asset class. So like I say, most people will actually inherently know that, mm-hmm. but they will still not go and invest in capital markets yeah. because they know that they don't Better. quite know enough and they think they're going to get burnt. And I can tell you that uh, unless they are actually taken by the hand and educated yeah. and I don't mean university education yeah, I mean properly educated yeah. on the potential pitfalls of capital markets then they probably will yeah um, which I don't want to finish on a negative note um, well let's 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 be fair here like where we're in a year where bonds are down significantly yeah and normal investors are not doing very well yeah a whole lot of financial advisors out there who've been doing the same thing for a long time Suddenly, they're looking at 
the Quants and the Feistenstein line of really solid. It's just not worked out for us this year. Hmm. And, and the comeback is just hang in there for another four years yeah. and it might come back above above water. But also, like, we know that, well, in Australia, we've just seen that property can fall. We haven't been seen that for a long time, but yep. we've now realised that it can fall. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in America, we saw that happen sure did. Yep. after 2008. Capital markets, we saw that, especially with the GFC. What happens if you've got your hand off the wheel and you're long only coming into an event like that in terms of building your family's wealth for the future? Well, as we say, there's a difference between um, getting a return on capital and the return of capital. If you lose a certain amount of money, you need to make, in percentage terms, more than that back just to get you back to level. your level playing field, yeah. right? Um, so the problem pe- some people have, again, it depends on the age of the investor. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a family, then that's better because you're spreading around um, the, shall we say, the regenerative capacity of the capital mm-hmm. to make the money back, mm-hmm. right? But your options are you either make the money back um, with a super high rate of return, which involves taking increased risk, yeah. or you you just have to grind down the clock on, on your investment horizon mm-hmm. and say, okay, um, the financial planner who put me into Magellan, mm-hmm. it's down 50 plus percent, mm-hmm. and his advice to me is, well, just, just wait till it gets back above water. And your risk there as, a, as an investor is, do I crystallise the loss mm-hmm. and you know, take the hit and, and, and move on, yeah. right? And try and redeploy your capital into something else that's gonna make you money? Mm-hmm. Or you stay the course, you listen to the financial planner and who just says, oh, it wasn't my fault, uh, markets go down, which is true. Um, and he says, well, just, you know, just hang in there till it comes back. What happens if it never comes back? Right? Then it doesn't matter if your investment horizon is 20 years or 50 years, mm. if that stock, and this happens a lot, like you, you actually look at the constituents of stock market indices over time, mm. there are entire sectors the drop that are sent to the graveyard yeah. and they, they never come back, right? So um, again, it, this is a behavioural economics answer mm. um, for the investor. It's it's do they have the intestinal fortitude to crystallise the loss and move what's left of that capital mm-hmm. into something that they think will make a make the money back, or if they stay the course, then they damn well better be highly confident that that stock is going to recover one day. Economic cost are two words that haunt, that should haunt all of us daily. Marcel, is there anything we can do to finish on a high note? Um, You may wish me a very Merry Christmas. (laughs) 
And a happy um, new year. And a happy new year. <laughs> lots of lots of Whitehaven coal um, in my sack would be uh, would be wonderful. Um, I don't know if it'll get another two hundred and seventy percent next year, but um, hope springs eternal. Perfect. Or new hope coal as well. But anyway, yes. There we go. Thank you. All good. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>